they were the really one of the first two or three vendors that came out with this idea to do scale out object storage. But I think they were ahead of the pack in thinking, let's really decouple from the platform. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of Great Things with Great Tech, the podcast highlighting companies doing great things with great technology. My name's Anthony Spiteri and in this episode, we're talking to a company dealing in petabyte scale software-defined storage, revolutionizing the way organizations store and manage their data, a company transforming data management and infrastructure across industries while focusing on combating the growing threat of ransomware. That company is Scality, and I'm speaking to Paul Speciali, CMO at Scality. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So just before we go back to a topic that I love talking about, which is software-defined storage, just as a reminder, if you love great things with great tech and would like to be on future episodes, you can click on the link on the show notes or go to gtwgt.com and register your interest. Just as a reminder, all episodes of GTWGT are available on all good podcasting platforms, Google, Apple, Spotify, all hosted and distributed by Spotify Podcasts. And just as a reminder, go to YouTube, go to at GTWGT Podcast, hit that like and subscribe button, and you will get all future episodes as well as being able to see all previous 63 episodes. With that, Paul, welcome to the show. And I guess let's start with giving a bit about your background, um, you sure. know, and the fact that, that you've been at Scality for, you know, two thirds of its life, basically. Um, let's right. start with you and then we'll get into the history of Scality. Sure. So to kind of uh, boil my career down, I've been in the tech industry now for almost 30 years, I'm, I'm afraid to say. I kind of focused the original 10 years on data management database companies. Uh, but the last 20, I've been really focused on data storage, a little bit of cloud mixed in as well. Um, and my roles have uh, started as a developer. So I actually was a C++ developer. Then I became a product manager. I was the chief product officer here. And now I'm the chief uh, marketing officer. So I've kind of run the gamut. Wow. Cool. But you end up realizing it's all very interconnected anyway. So each one built on, on the previous. Yeah, excellent. And the fact that you, you're, a, you're, you're a coder by trade is, is also interesting as well, right? So that, that, right. that points to some great evolution. But I think, you know, being a, pro a coder, product manager, and now, you know, CMO, points to, you know, just intrinsic, you know, value of all that knowledge that you've built up over your, your 30 year career. So it always good. helps. Yeah, there you go. Hey, with, so with Scality, um, a company started, um, born out of Paris, France in 2009, but That's maybe right. just give a bit of a background as to the founding of the company itself and, and why the company um, was founded back by, um, I think it was four, four, four co-founders back in 2009. Yeah, it's actually five founders. Oh. They were all uh, based in Paris, France. And it turns out that they were all already affiliated through a previous company. They were working on uh, uh, mail, email security software, especially for service providers. So they really got to know the service provider space very well. Um, they started working with the big ones, you know, like uh, Orange in France and Telenet in Belgium and Comcast in the US. It was actually those companies that started saying to them, hey, look, we've got a big data storage problem. And that's kind of the spark that started them thinking about, could we do something that's innovative in software defined storage? So indeed, it started in Paris, France, and, you know, it's become kind of a mini global after that. Yeah, I mean, you're now kind of co-headquartered out of um, the US and France. So it's quite interesting in that sense. Um, 
you know, the company itself started in a period of time where, you know, software-defined storage and SDS was, was all the rage. Um, so what was the, you know, original, and you said you had a really, really good solid foundation in the service provider space. I'm actually interested. So what, yeah. what, what was the nature of the software um, before that um, in terms of what they were working on? Well, they were working on anti-spam solutions. So they really understood kind of this whole big, you know, scalability problem in terms of webmail scale uh, problems. Um, you know, they understood things like distributed systems. That was a lot of core technology. Uh, if you build a system like this, you have to bring together a lot of domains, right? It's data storage, it's networking, it's RESTful protocols. There's so much of it that comes together. So they were able to borrow that expertise. But of course, the team broadened out and became more experts in uh, in data storage. The core idea really was to provide scalable petabyte scale storage and to do it on open systems, on commodity uh, platforms. Uh, you know, even up until that time, you had storage systems that were just proprietary. They were custom yeah. hardware, software. And so the innovation was to decouple that, to really do this in software and give the customer freedom of choice on the platform. Yeah, I think that's a good key of, you know, what software-defined storage was trying to achieve, you know, back in the day. I mean, we, we are talking a while ago now, and, and we'll talk a little bit about where the industry is today, you know, in regards to SDS. But, you know, back then, um, I would have guessed that, you know, if I think back to that time frame, we had, you know, Nutanix starting to sort of come out of its weeds. We were having, um, yep. you know, even, even before that, though, I think, um, you know, well, actually after that, VMware were doing their own sort of thing uh, with vSAM, but that was more 2012, 13 period, but we had an inkling yeah, something exactly. was happening. But what, I mean, so for my workings out, Scality was almost one of the first to really come out and say, we're going to be software defined. We're going to truly decouple our software from our hardware. Am I, am I kind of right in saying that given the timeline yeah, that I'm working out? You're, you're absolutely right. They were the really one of the first two or three vendors that came out with this idea to do scale out object storage, but I think they were ahead of the pack in thinking, let's really decouple from the platform. Uh, they went pretty far. You know, this is in 2010 before I joined. They were actually delivering software for Linux packages. So the customer could actually say, I'm running CentOS, I'm running Red Hat, I'm running some other distro. They could pick their distro and pick their hardware. So they really were software defined, right? You had other vendors. In fact, I was with one of them. They were called Ampladata where we said it's software, but it's targeted at a certain fixed hardware, right? So they really pushed the envelope in terms of giving that customer the freedom of choice. You know, you're right, it's now 13 years later than that. And we still look at why people buy. And I'll tell you, if you look at the top two or three reasons, people still say, I don't wanna be vendor locked. Yeah. I just don't wanna be vendor locked, right? I wanna have my choice to choose my platform today and even in the future when I grow. And we've had that happen a few times where people jumped to a different vendor uh, as they scaled the system. Yeah, I think if I think back to, you know, those days when I was deep in the in the weeds of architecting, you know, hosting platforms, you know, I, I remember the the monolithic storage systems that we had to deal with and the problems that arose with it. Um, it was always problematic. So we, we were always looking for this new what's next type of solution. And to its to its end, you know, backend scalability um, and ease of use was huge, right? Um, and right. then it was even better if you could take a sunk cost of a storage system that you had done and repurpose it in some way. And I think that's a big benefit of uh, being hardware agnostic and software defined is you give your customers freedom of choice to be able to not only choose the hardware moving forward as they de design new platforms, but maybe be able to realize investments in older hardware and add that and keep that going a little bit longer. Is, is that what you see with, with, with Scality as well in terms of your customer base? 
Yeah, we do. In fact, I have an interesting anecdote. Uh, since I was with Ampladata and they were later acquired, we went back to one of the customers I had in Japan who had the old hardware and said, can the Scality Ring run on this these old servers? And the answer was yes. So yeah. it really provided kind of investment protection. But the other thing you see with customers is that they want to know that they can make choices at any point. For example, a lot of vendors force the obsolescence of the hardware platform, right? They'll say in three years or five years, move to our new model, yep. or we're going to start charging you some higher support fees. That goes away, right? Because we don't control the hardware. So they have full control. Do they want to run it for five, six, seven years? And then you're organically growing as well, right? There's no disruption as you pick the next generation of servers that you want to run on. So it's organic growth, not only across your choice, but even across different generations of servers. Yeah, I get that. And I think um, one of the challenges in the early days, going back, and again, I've maybe repressed a few of these memories as well, because that's, right. we, that's what we do, right? Um, was just the promise of scalability was, 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 was always there. But the reality of the hardware that was at the, at the time, specifically the disks, right? And right. how you dealt with the physics of still SSD not being, you know, front and center, NVMe not really being even possible yeah. to be bought, right? So in those early days, how, how did, did Scality deal with that? There's obviously got to be some smarts in the software that get around the inherent problem of physics. Yeah, there, you know, there's been some real changes. You're, you're reminding me of the day that I started, you know, working on this problem in 2010. We were dealing with 10 and 20 gigabyte drives, Yeah. right? So the design point, even for the scalability ring at the time, was to think about scaling to tens of thousands of nodes, right? Because to make multiple petabytes out of these small boxes, you had to start thinking about those numbers, right? Today, it's an entirely different world, right? You can get a petabyte in a single chassis, so, you know, running something on two or three servers might make perfect sense for some customers, but you really need to design things that are innately scalable, don't have a single point of failure, right? And that's not only for scale, but it's for high availability. Yeah. And then you need to put these wrappers on it to make it, like you said, easy to manage, right? Because ultimately you're going to have, you know, people that need to run storage systems, but also need to know how to manage it with their networks and their applications, so to put that thinking on, you know, an operational scale was really the uh, the the thing that they had to come up with. Yeah, and and scalability and resiliency together, um, typically in, in the early days, didn't didn't go hand in hand. You, you almost had to have one or the other uh, for memory, right? And a lot of um, hardware vendors, specifically, I think the ones that went for, you know, trying to go to a specific appliance and tying everything in together really yeah. struggled um, to achieve that that perfect sort of triangle of performance, scalability, and reliability. Um, so, yeah. so how did um, Scality get over that hurdle? Well, I, I don't know if you remember, but back in this 2009, 2010 timeframe, there was also the emergence of what we now think is common, which is erasure coding. Yes. Right. We all started seeing that there was the end of the reliability of RAID 5, RAID 6 for large scale systems, right? It works perfectly well when you have a few dozen drives, but now think about a system that has thousands of drives, right? Things are going to fail all the time yep. and you don't want to be constantly in this degraded mode rebuilding things. So we started pioneering the idea of doing resiliency over these different protocols, right? Using erasure codes, variable parity schemes, and even doing geo geographic spreading of that data so that you could have site failure tolerance, right? So those were kind of the innovations that were in, intrinsic into the system from the beginning the ability to have thousands of nodes participating with thousands of drives um, and to do kind of this geo-spread erasure coding so that things can fail. You just expect them to fail. That's okay. 
Uh, if they fail, you have enough redundancy in the system. And by the way, we can self-heal. Um, you know, so if a drive fails, we'll just rebuild the missing data to another drive in the cluster. Yeah, that, that's correct. Because I think even, even um, systems that were based, a lot of storage systems were based on um, ZFS and, and you yeah. know, all that sort of technology as well. But the painfulness of actually a single drive failure and that on, on a rebuild and a Z pool and all that kind of stuff was, was painful, like you said. So we needed a better way to be able to tolerate that at scale because, yeah, you're right. Like I remember specifically systems, you know, degrading for months. While, exactly. um, while a rebuild was happening and it was just untenable, but you had to deal with it at the time. So I think that's yep. where a lot of the software defined object storage, eraser coding came into play and they realized that it, it was a better way. Um, there was a better way. You ended up realizing you, you just expect failures to happen, right? It's kind of the hyperscaler model. There, there's always going to be component failures and it's a normal mode of operation. By the way, it shouldn't even be an emergency. You don't need an admin standing by to replace a drive if something happens, right? You just yeah. let it happen and you route around it. That's it. That's it. So in terms of products, obviously you've got the Scality Ring and and, and, the, and then we'll talk about our, our, our Tesco a little bit later on. Yeah. Um, so Ring has, has Ring been there from the start as the product name? It has. So Ring, you know, it's the name comes from the underlying topology. Uh, there was actually um, a distributed peer-to-peer -peer protocol called Cord that MIT published in the 2008, something like that timeframe. That describes a peer-to-peer -peer ring technology with a ring uh, circular key space. Cool. So that's the origin of the name. It's always been the product name. Uh, the product actually launched in 2010 and it's been our flagship product since. Yep. Uh, it started, I should say, as a pure object store, uh, but at some point we may wanna talk that we also introduced the distributed file system right into the object store. So it's today okay. presented as both file and object storage. Yeah, okay. And obviously offering the ability to, you know, back in those days, I think, would it be fair to say the target was, you know, VMware virtualization platforms back then? Or even back then, we were looking at more larger sets of data to, to store? Because even the concept of big data um, and, you know, the growth of data itself is, is relatively new in terms of the scale of it. Yeah. Um, and I think back then, we were just really interested in how much performance and scalability could we get into our virtual platform with our storage? Yeah, yeah, I would say that VMware was always a factor, right? There was always this thinking that virtual machines needed data storage, but honestly, the use cases that drove object storage more at the beginning, you started thinking about images and videos, right? Um, I, I mentioned email, that was kind of one specific use case that the service providers wanted to do because they were still hosting their own email services for their consumers. But then you had photo sharing services, video sharing services, backup for consumers. That's what the service providers wanted to build. And they didn't want to build it on EMC Symmetrics, right? Yeah. They wanted to build it on something that was agile, designed for billions of objects. Um, you know, just a sense of scale. Today, we have one service provider that has 220 billion unique objects in one ring, okay. right? That's an entirely different level of scale than you're going to get from uh, previous technology. So the use cases that drove it were these kind of rich media things, because that's where you start getting petabytes, right? And then you could start thinking about, you know, service providers that certainly want to host backup as a service or, you know, storage as a service offerings. That That's really where the roots of this were. Now, that's a good way to approach it, right? So yeah, because if you thought back in those, you know, say 2010 to 2015 days, the size of a virtual machine was maybe it got up to hundred gigs, maybe, you know what That's I mean? Right. So the storage in those machines wasn't traumatic, right? So exactly. you, you guys targeting those higher, you know, uh, targets of storage, I think 
from what I'm sort of putting together, has given you the ability to get ahead of the game in terms of the architecture, the design, the actual performance aspect of it. Yeah. Remember also at this time, we already had a generation of scale-out NAS devices and they were focused on things like media and entertainment storage and, you know, internal editing, transcoding type use cases, right? But that's a certain level of internal scale. As soon as you put it on the cloud, you start realizing that, you know, now you've got 100,000 users and you've got, like I said, a few billion objects. It's a different level of scale. And that's what we always started focusing on, right? Yeah. So the sweet spot for Ring really became people that had a petabyte or more, but they were quickly thinking about getting to tens of petabytes. That's the level of scale where this system really made sense and still does today. And now the use cases have just expanded, right? Because at the time we weren't thinking medical imaging, we weren't thinking of government surveillance, right? There's just so much more today that makes sense at this very large scale. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I think just going back to the whole concept of software-defined storage, SDS, it was obviously a buzzword for a number of years they arrived. And then again, VMware jumped on it, Nutanix jumped on it. Everyone was, you know, if I, if I, if I think about it today, um, in the last sort of four years, how would I parallel it? It's like, okay, mm-hmm. there was crypto. I've got AI happening at the moment. There's always these buzzes that, that occur in tech, yeah. right? And, and SDS was definitely one of those. So how do you SDS see- SDS was one. Yeah, how do you see the evolution of that from where it was back then to where it is today settled, you know, and 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 fairly mature in terms of its market where people don't even really talk about it as a as a leading, you know, sort of descriptor of of what they're doing, but it's still right. very important. Yeah, let me, you know, my way of categorizing it is the following, right? We had block, file, and object SDS, software defined storage, right? We were playing in this arena of object, software defined storage. I'll give you one other thing, though, that really happened to kind of move this into an accelerated form. At the time that the Ring launched, the uh, acceptance of the Amazon S3 protocol as the de facto standard was not clear. So many of us, including Scality, many vendors were looking at what's the default protocol for doing object storage, right? And we thought about, you know, you remember the old Swift protocol? EMC had Centera. They had their own API. You had SNEA, the storage uh, networking consortium that came up with their own called uh, CDMI. Around 2013, 14, you start realizing that people are embracing S3. And moreover, the uh, application vendors started using it to interface with object storage, right? So you, you started seeing this emergence of people saying, aha, S3 is here to stay. Amazon's S3 started getting really big. And I'll tell you what, that was really a spark to make object SDS really accelerate. Now, applications were written to it and, and ISVs, independent software vendors, embraced it. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, yeah, Swift Price had forgotten about that. But I remember when, um, back in the day when I launched um, our first object storage platform, which wasn't that great, it was based on Ceph, but we had yeah. to offer both protocols. It was Swift and or S3, you know what I mean? Exactly. So, and that, that today has is, is gone the way of the dodo. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And we've, we've fl- uh, supported them all and as well as Azure Blob. So, you know, there's been so many choices and all this, but this one's here to stay. And, you know, with vendors like Veeam now really fully embracing it, it makes complete sense. Absolutely. It's bec- it's become um, the future. We talk about that a little, well, a lot actually now in terms of what's the future of object storage. It's it's not just talking about cloud or, you know, a way to put your archival storage, it's primary use cases, which I've I've argued as well um, when, I've, when I've said that I've in my head, I've been thinking, well, it's actually been primary use case for the longest time as well, because 
you know, you think yeah. about VSAN, Nutanix, um, uh, there was a few others out there that were there. It was all based on object storage under, under the surface, right? And it's still kind of, yeah. is. so it's always been there. Um, just, just talk a little bit more about the, the, the Scality Ring and its capabilities, sure. and then we'll move on to Arteska. Yeah, no problem. So again, the Ring was designed to be this very scalable, but also very flexible uh, SDS solution for object storage, right? These early adopters in the service provider space certainly embraced it to build their cloud services, but the company realized that to really penetrate the market in a bigger way, we had to go after the enterprise. So there was always going to be this enterprise space that was going to build a private cloud and have their own internal workloads. But what's the problem, right? At the time, they were still very much stuck with older legacy applications that were based on file protocols. So we made this rather big decision to actually integrate an, a file system into the object store. And that was a unique decision. The other vendors in the space actually decided to plug in kind of a gateway technology. Yes. So you have NFS or SMB speaking to the object store, right? But now you've got POSIX built into the object store kernel so you can present NFS, SMB, or S3 on an equal footing. They can all scale out in capacity and in performance. And that really got things rolling, right? So now you're in the enterprise, you can start talking to people about you know, legacy backup on SMB, right? All the vendors supported that, and it creates this bridge to object storage. So now they're comfortable with the solution, they see the scale, and they start onboarding other apps, right? So that was really the, the promise of it. So today the ring is scale out file and object storage. It's super rich in the S3 API. It actually emulates Amazon in its identity management uh, model. Oh, okay. Yep. So there's a whole idea of IAM. If you know how to manage, administer, users and accounts and groups and roles and policies in Amazon, it's exactly the way it looks in Ring. Okay, so this whole security, you know, authentication, access control stuff looks identical. Yeah. From a file system perspective, it's what you know, you mount NFS, you mount SMB, exactly the same, okay? The system is very, very feature rich. We're investing a lot in both sides. So today it can do, you know, distributed, replicated deployments, um, it can start small, it can grow online, it does online online growth, it does online updates. Uh, the system is just hugely reliable and now it has this 13 year track record of running at massive scale, you know, 100 petabyte plus in a single system. Yeah, because you're up to version nine for memory, aren't you? We are at version nine. We introduced that at the end of last year. We do kind of this tech train model, so it'll conclude with a long-term support version this year and then it's on to ring 10 so yeah. we have a roadmap going forward to 2030 that's uh, a great for, for yeah oh, that's amazing it's, it's a great um cadence as well in terms of if you think about from 2009 first release in 2010 so nine major versions um all probably with significant feature upgrades over 13 years that's pretty impressive so in yeah. version nine what would you say are the, are the biggest um new features in version nine well, we've been super focused on this whole ransomware problem. So everything from object storage, immutability at the API layer, things like S3 object locking, that's been really, really important for you know the backup use case. Backup is more and more sensitive to ransomware. Um, we've done multi-target replication so that people can have a, a you know, home system and one or more remote disaster recovery sites. That's been a really high demand. Um, the ability to make operations easier, you know, simplified consoles to manage distributed systems in an easier way from a single console. And now you have this concept of the edge starting to roll yep. in. So people want to have Artesca on the edge, ring in the center. How do I manage that from a single console? Those are okay. kind of the focus areas. So actually, one of the questions I was going to ask is what's the link between ring and Artesca? 
Yeah, yeah. So the the real common thread is that they're both S3 API products, right? But what we realized with Ring is that it's this very high-end flexible product. What we needed was something that was sort of very friendly for the mid-range, very, okay. very simple, right? And what a, one of the ways to simplify it is to do a little bit less. And one of the big things we chose to do less was not do a file system, right? That ends up putting a lot of, you know, a lot of extra work, a lot of extra baggage to administer uh, the product. So it's pure object storage. Um, we did start architecting parts of Ring in containers and deploying on Kubernetes, but Arteska takes that a step further. So Arteska is actually completely cloud native. It's fully microservices based. It deploys on Kubernetes, you know, so it's the future in terms of the architecture. Eventually that can become more and more of the architecture of Ring, at least at the top end, right? They sort of differ at the storage layer. Uh, but that's the the main the main shared uh, technology is really S3. We were one of the first to actually put an S3 open source server, uh, you know, into the into the open source uh, domain. Both of our systems use the same tech in terms of their S3 API capabilities, and uh, you know we leverage we leverage both in both systems. Yeah. So is Artesca only deployable in a containerized environment, or is there is there other um, options for it? No, so it's software only today. Uh, we're also starting to roll it out as an OVA for VMware. Okay. Okay, so there's two choices and uh, a little bit of a hint is there may be more options coming in the next few weeks. Oh, excellent, good stuff. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was wondering what the, the differences are because obviously it's object storage throughout, but then right. yeah, you've just effectively, you know, taken a, a little bit of the... The overhead of 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 one well, overhead, the, maybe even complexity is not the right word, but you've just basically simplified the ring to broad, yeah. broaden the appeal out to to, to a bigger mind share, right? Yeah. They're, they're, the other fundamental difference, of course, is that you've got this distributed peer to peer system under ring, so it starts on a cluster, right? It's yeah. never going to run on one one host or one server. Arteska can, right? Okay. And the way it does yeah. it, it has a little bit of a different data durability model. It can do local data protection and distributed data protection. So it understands that it might be deployed as a singleton, right? Yeah. And it needs to be reliable in its own sense, but then it can grow and change its uh, durability scheme to distribute it. Yeah, I understand that. So, um, and that was, I mean, I, I read somewhere that it was co-designed with HP, but I know that's not directly sort of accurate, but just, just talk a little bit about the partnership with, with Hewlett Packard there in terms of how that came to be. Yeah, with HPE, we've been, you know, engaged with them in, you know, increasing ways since about 2014. That was the time at which we started the partnership. They actually did a, we did an agreement for them to resell Ring. So today, if you buy object storage from HPE, it's Scality Ring. Um, they did an investment in the company through their Pathfinder Ventures in 2016. Cool. And we continued to engage, right? So there was a time in about 2019 where they they said they would like an object store that runs on an all flash uh, version of the HP Apollo. That was really the collaboration. We built uh, the software, yeah. they provided the first platform, and we were they were sort of our inaugural launch partner, I would say, for Arteska. Uh, so you know we offered it on not only Apollo, the big one and the small one, but also on the DL servers, all flash and hybrid models. Okay, so. They saw it as a different offering for that that they could offer as a lightweight object store for some of these uh, mid-market use cases. Yeah, very good. Um, just as a bit of a segue there in terms of just the general state of, of storage, you know, the paradigm of you know, where we were 10 years ago versus today with 
NVMe being where it is and, and even, you know, more advanced sort of storages that are out there. How, how has that helped Scality, you know, in terms of achieve what it's wanted to achieve, reliability, scalability, and ease of use? Yeah, so Flash has been a very constant thing for us in one way, right? Even since the very beginning, Ring has always used a small component of Flash for metadata storage, right? Whether it's POSIX metadata or S3 metadata. We use it for that, for accelerating, you know, the metadata store and doing lookup operations. We went a little further and we started to use Flash very aggressively for internal indexes. You know, so we containerize the data on disk. We need an index that helps us locate where the files are. All of that's in Flash, right? So we do everything we can to shield the spinning disks from IOs until we actually need the data. So in fact, we can deploy Ring in a very high performance way. You know, if you need a lot of throughput, we'll still in all likelihood recommend spinning disk, right? So it's the small amount, let's say one or 2% of the overall capacity on flash, the rest on spinning disk. But now you have this ability to go further with flash. Let's say you have an all flash server. What can we do? We can make small IOs quicker. We can make random IOs quicker. And that started becoming important when we started seeing workloads like in analytics, more and more things like Splunk, uh, yeah. came came at us and Apache Spark, right? Now you're not always going to have, you know, multi-megabyte video data. You're going to have small log files. You're going to have event streams. So that's where all flash comes in and both Ring and Arteska can take advantage of it. But again, we're not saying that HDD is gone, right? It still works really well for the workloads where you need uh, aggregate throughput or streaming sequential IO. Absolutely. Yeah, that's correct. And I think, you know, you've pointed to a, a point of the in, part of the industry now it's, it's hugely growing in importance with regards to log analytics um that's all yep. part of the ransomware conversation and we're going to have a, a bit of a longer conversation shortly on that um, right. so yeah so to be able to leverage the technology of the disks as it moves through you know flash and mvme for those smaller billions of object sort of use cases that's kind of setting yeah. itself up for a really good spot, like you say, in the 2030, which isn't too far away. No, it's scarily it's not far away. And, and I should say the Arteska durability model, this idea that you do local and distributed erasure coding was in mind with the fact that high density flash was coming at us. Yeah. So, you know, to rebuild a disk very, very quickly, you don't want to always do network IOs. You want to be able to do it locally. And that that's kind of the way that we're optimizing Arteska. Yeah, good stuff. Hey, just talk a little bit about the partnership with service providers. Obviously, that interests me. I mean, I'm, 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 I know that you guys do very well in the service provider space. I know that you've just uh, released a VMware object storage extension for VMware Cloud Director as well. So you're yep. really focusing on that area. So talk about how service providers are very important to, to you guys in terms of partnerships. Yeah, absolutely. So we've always, as we talked about, historically had these relationships with the, the mega service providers, right? The Comcasts and the charters of the world. Moreover, what's happening now is you're starting to see this mid-market mid of service providers, right? They want to serve a regional audience or they want to serve a spe specific vertical audience. In Europe, what we're seeing is the service providers want to be a sovereign cloud. There's always mm, been this concern word. about yeah. being too dependent on you know, foreign technology. So they want to ensure that the data stays local, for example. That's the market we're serving. And they've been the ones demanding that we do more and more integration with vCloud Director. You know, so vCloud now has an object storage extension that lets us be managed through the vCloud console. Yeah. You can actually provision the storage through that. Uh, we've done, you know, all the different phases of work that it took to get there. But really the embrace that we're seeing now is in this kind of mid-market service provider that's building their own cloud services, usually for their specific B2B audience. 
Yeah, good stuff. And, and again, offering a bit of flexibility in, in terms of the protocol, whether you go ring, whether you go Atesca, that, that, that's yeah. big as well. Um, in terms of other partnerships, so obviously you're, you're broad, you've got use cases for, for the backup industry, so just, and obviously broader than that, but just look, who are your key partners that you work with overall? Yeah, so let me divide them into a couple of uh, categories. On the platform side, we mentioned HPE, but they are not the only ones, right? We've partnered with Cisco for many years. They resell us on their UCS line of servers, uh, Supermicro, Lenovo. Uh, there's a lot of hardware platform partners that we work with. On the cloud side, we've been very, very close with Microsoft Azure. We've done a lot of collaborative work with them, everything from object storage for Azure Stack to building a uh, S3 to Azure Blob uh, translator. Okay, yeah. So that's an ongoing relationship. And then on the ISV side, we've been really busy with the leading data protection vendors like Veeam, but also with Veritas and Commvault and Cohesity. Um, in the analytics side, that's kind of the burgeoning one for us. Yeah. It took us a long time, but we've done all of the validation with Splunk now in multiple deployment models, by the way. This is single site, stretched, replicated, that was a lot of work to become validated. And we used to have some huge joint deployments with them, uh, but there's also Cloudera, there's Microfocus, you know, there's a lot of uh, other vendors in that space. Yeah. The last one I'll call out is the medical imaging community. This is a oh, industry okay, that yeah. generates tons of data. Yep. So think about all the picture archiving packs, vendors and vendor neutral archives. Uh, they're very, you know, they, they like the ring because it can store petabytes of data for patient lifetime, right? So it's it's an ideal solution for them for that kind of data. That's good. And I think that shows the the broadness of, of the appeal yeah. you guys have, which, you know, so a lot of uh, vendors will focus on particular verticals, but you guys have this broad appeal, which I think is, is part of your advantage, right? Um, right, but, right. Yeah, let's talk about ransomware. And that's a big thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned the partnership with Veeam and obviously me being at Veeam, it'd be remiss of me to talk about, you know, of course. You know the way that immutability and object storage and, um, you know, the the, the way that not only for backup, but only from a primary workload perspective, we are protecting against cyber crime and ransomware attacks, the sophistication of what's coming. You know, how's Scality, you know, dealing with that on the SDS side of it? Yeah, so this has become a real focus area for us for now the last, you know, year, year and a half to two years. We did a lot of early work in making sure that the systems were hardened, but it became clear to us that this whole area of ransomware protection behind a solution like Beam is somewhere where we could really add value, right? So you have high-end customers that can fit with the ring, but you have an entire mid-market of customers that can also use a solution like Artesca, right? So start with, you know, 50 terabytes or 100 terabytes of data and then grow from there. That's not something the ring could have done before. So we started hardening the product for this use case with things like object lock capabilities, so you get immutability, right? You can actually say lock the data for 60 days, 90 days, six months, whatever you want it to be. Uh, but we went further. We started adding retention policies. We added compliance mode. Once right. you set the, the locks, you can't override them, even if you're the super admin. So that, you know, you're starting to think about the internal malicious uh, threat that may come about. Very important, that very important, that overlooked almost. Very important, yeah. But more than that, you know, you can harden the operating system. You can make it possible to not log into the root, right? You can lock down network ports. You can slim down the OS so you don't have as many CVEs in the packages, right? There's so much work you can do here. Um, Multi-factor authentication, encryption of the data, 
right? So all of that is in all the products right now. And it's something that we've worked very closely with many vendors, but I would, I would really say Veeam the most. Um, we were one of the inaugural launch partners for Veeam V12. So we started testing it last year. Uh, so we support direct to object storage. We support the SOS API. Um, and now we've gone further, right? We've actually made simplified installers for Veeam. Uh, we've done security policies for Veeam and we started performance tuning for Veeam. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's kind of the future in terms of what we've, what we've been talking about at the company, which is really focusing on object storage as, as, as a primary workload, not only mm -hmm. for, you know, that those landing zone type of backup, but also through a life cycle of capacity and, and archives. So that's that's cool that you guys are doing that with us. And yeah, we can't we can't talk about it today because this episode is going live before Veeam on twenty twenty three. But there are going to be some really good announcements there as well at the show. So looking forward to that. Um, that's right. Just to finish off. We've got a couple of minutes left. Just wanted to you know ask you about you know how are you guys going to continue to innovate and disrupt the market moving forward in a in a market <laughs> where I feel like. Storage has become, you know, kind of like table stakes. However, yeah. it's still very important for a lot of people. But platforms like Kubernetes and, you know, we're talking mm -hmm. about Wasm coming into it into, into, into play have kind of taken the storage focus away. So how do you guys remain, you know, there or thereabouts in this sort of new world over the next four or five years? Yeah, I think we look at, you know, we, we look at a, a lot of different ways, right? But moreover, the customer's voice. And the customer does have a long-term view about how they want to use their data, right? You can't say that the storage is strategic, although it is, it's the data that's strategic, right? Absolutely. So what yeah. do we hear? We hear three themes, okay? Number one is data is going outside of the traditional data center, going to the edge, right? And if you think about a lightweight object store, it's very ideal for edge deployments, right? It can run on a VM, it can run on Kubernetes. That's really perfect, right? And we're starting to see this pattern of hundreds or thousands of edge locations that collect data, but need to return some amount of that data back to a central data center, right? So you can see an Arteska to ring combination in that, okay? So that's one pattern. Making management of these big federated systems easier is one of our strategic directions. So that's, that's something we're working on very actively. Uh, the second one is life cycle management of the data from hot to cold, right? Yeah. Data comes in, it's hot, where do you wanna put it? You wanna put it on a flash, right? Um, you might want to retire it at some point to a more cost-effective high-density flash, like a QLC. Over time, maybe it makes sense to put it on spinners, right? But it goes further. You've also got cloud storage. You've got cold storage in the cloud. And you've still got banks that are running on tape, right? So this idea of single endpoint, single S3 endpoint that manages your data across these different temperatures and locations is something that you can innovate in. So that's another thrust for us. I'll throw one more out at the risk of overloading things. <laughs> uh, you're storing billions of files. What good is it if you can't find the data, uh, right? So some blending of intelligent search query with data storage, right? Makes a lot of sense going forward. Amazing. Well, look, the future's bright for you guys. I, I really love what you guys are doing. Again, you're, you're mature, you're set. Um, you've got a great reputation in the market and looking forward to you know, what scale are you going to do over the next uh, five to seven years as we get into 20, 2030, as scary as that is again. Um, hey, Paul, thanks for being on the show. Um, just as a final reminder, if you would like to be on the show, please go to GTWGT podcast. You can find me at Anthony Spateri or go to gtwgt.com. And with that, I'd like to thank Paul and Scality for being on episode 64 of Great Things with Great Tech.
Arteska, yeah. Just yeah. think art. <laughs> Artes You'll get it. Arteska, there you go. Artesca. Ring and Arteska. Yeah, the, the Vemon stuff and just mm -hmm. in general. I, again, don't obviously mention the announcement because this will be on um, yeah. next week. So just allude to it a little bit. Um, talk about the exciting stuff coming in. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe just discuss about, I always say, you know, how did you initially innovate you know, and disrupt the market? It's a question mm -hmm. that I like asking. And then future innovation and future disruption. Like how, how okay. are you guys going to continue to grow as a company, right? That's um, great stuff. I'm, I'm all ready for that. Awesome. Okay. Let me just make sure I got that there. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Good stuff. I'm just going to go off and uh, very quickly get a, a glass of water because I can feel my Yeah, me too. I'll go grab that. that. Um, and we're doing, jumping on a different link, right? Yeah. So we're jumping on this different link. So at, at the top of the hour, uh, I'm just going to mm -hmm. we'll stop this, jump on the link, and we'll just dive straight into the show. So I'll do a countdown, okay. do the recording, and get into it. Awesome. Sounds I'll be good. on in uh, two minutes. Two minutes. No worries. Thank See you, then. Anthony. All Have right, a good bye -bye. one. Bye -bye. All right. See you thanks again. Bye -bye. See ya. Thanks, bye -bye. MK. Bye.